Welcome to Tashma, the podcast where you get to listen in on Hadar's Beit Midrash. I'm Rabbi Avi Killip. One of Rabbi Yitz Greenberg's key contributions to Jewish thought is his framework of the three eras of Jewish history, which traces how Judaism has fundamentally shifted and adapted over time. Today we're listening to The Great, Mighty, and Awesome God Isn't What God Used to Be in which Rav Yitz explores how notions of God, covenant, and responsibility have been transformed throughout Jewish history, but also ways in which they remained stable and contiguous. Let's listen in. The case study I have chosen to go over with you is because I'm taking a central text of biblical Judaism and seeing how it is reinterpreted to become really a central text of rabbinic Judaism. So, but it's not just a reinterpretation of a few sentences. It is a kind of a sweeping theological move, a change in the paradigm. It really conceptualizes a new understanding of God's nature and how God behaves, and therefore how humans are supposed to behave, particularly in this breed, in this covenant in this partnership between God and humanity. So the background is a text which is found in Devarim chapter 10, verse 10, in Moshe describes God with all the sweeping power of God in the Bible. He says, Hashem Elokeichem, the Lord your God, who Elokeu Elohim, is the God of gods, meaning the supreme and superior creator. The Lord of Lords, beyond all power, beyond all human or non-human power. This all-powerful God, and it's an interesting side comment, having stressed the cosmic and the extraordinary power implicit in God, Moshe stresses this God is very close and is very personally, emotionally, morally involved with the weak, with the vulnerable, with those who are in need. And thus he says, God who is the great, mighty, and awesome God, God of Gibor Venora, Mishpat, but what does he do? He does justice, he does, he brings law and equality before the law to Yasom Valmana, to the orphan and to the widow, the weakest members of society. And as a particular love for the outsider, for the again the, the marginal, the marginal person, Nevertheless, the language behind it, this God who is deeply, even in his most cosmic form, deeply involved with the weak, and of course the implication is that we too should be. Um, nevertheless, at this point, the praise that God is great, mighty, and awesome is a kind of a statement of the all-powerful God, very much represented in biblical times. God is the God who controls history, who intervenes. If you are on God's good side and if you are loyal to God, God will save you and protect you even against world powers. Thus the biblical story of the Exodus and the Yom Suf, the Reed Sea, when a powerless and frightened band of slaves were saved by an overwhelming divine intervention that split the sea and drowned 
his vast army that was pursuing them. So this is the kind of understanding of the biblical God that runs through the whole Bible. If one stays on God's good side, God protects and defeats world empires. If one betrays God and goes for other idolatry and other forms of worship, then God brings empires to punish the Jewish people. That's the background. But now we're talking about how do we come to a new understanding after the Churban, after the destruction. Actually, officially, the language of our Gemara text is the destruction of the first temple. But in fact, the Gemara itself reflects the destruction of the second temple. And what the rabbis are trying to say is that you can't go around talking about God as if nothing has changed, as if there has not been a destruction, as if the destruction has not challenged our picture of an all-powerful, irresistible God. And on the other hand, how do we understand the new relationship and the new understanding of God's role in the rabbinic tradition? What I'm trying to say, therefore, is that although there is great continuity between the rabbis and the Bible, the rabbis, in fact, believe that God has self-limited, self-transformed, and the Churban reflects God's allowing humans great freedom and calling for humans taking on greater responsibility and for new relationship between them. So let's turn to our text, if we can. The Talmud Babli Masechet Yuman, Rav Matzna Omar. The Talmud says that Rav Masna repeats the great praise, the great, the mighty, and awesome God, HaKel HaGodol HaGibor HaNura. Repeats this praise of God, which has not apparently been said in some time. And why is that so, that it has not been said in some time? What a Rav Masna, that Rav Masna Matana actually returned Return this praise of God to its fullness of Agodol, Hagibor, Vanora, great, mighty, and awesome. Is Matya is approaches or leans to the exposition of Rabbi Yehoshua ben Levi. Tomorrow, Rabbi Yehoshua ben Levi. Rabbi Yehoshua ben Levi tells us, Lama Nikroshman Why are the sages of those generations, the generations between the Bible? and the rabbinic tradition emergence. Why are they called Anshei Knesset Hagadola, the members of the great assembly? What makes them great? The answer is, Sheikh Ziru Ateret Leoshna. They return the crown of God to its former glory. Meaning they restored this praise of God as great, mighty, and awesome, which had fallen into disuse. Why? Because Moshe came and said originally, the great, the mighty, and also Moshe, Omar, Ha'el, Ha'godel, Ha'gibor, Vanora. Then along came Jeremiah. But that's what Moses said when God was in the fullness of power. But Jeremiah, the prophet who lived after the destruction of the first temple, said, you can't talk about God that way the same way as before. We know God not just from words and texts, we know God from the great events of Jewish history. When God in the Exodus saved us, we know God to be great, mighty, and awesome.
But here we are now after the destruction, says Jeremiah. Gentiles are carousing in the sanctuary. The holy temple where God was so present, where people could not go in, where the high priest could go into the holy of holies only one day a year under the incense cloud because the divine presence was so awesome that you couldn't go in safely without being extremely careful. But now in that very place, Gentiles are carousing in the sanctuary. So where is his awesomeness? How can you speak of God as awesome when in fact, what's so awesome about a God who can't protect his own holy temple from the desecration by Gentiles who disrespect the religion and the God? And so Jeremiah refused to use the word awesome. So there is a verse in Jeremiah that praises God, the great God, the mighty Lord of hosts, his name, but you'll notice it's missing the word awesome. And Rabbi Matana is saying, that's Rabbi Shuvan Levi is saying, because you can't speak of God as awesome when Gentiles are trampling his people. Along came Daniel. Again, Daniel is speaking after the destruction and said, Gentiles are enslaving his children. Goyim ishtabdim bevanum. How can you speak of God's might when his people are enslaved, degraded, sold into slavery, driven into exile? Therefore, when he prayed to God, he did not say mighty in his prayer. So we have a verse in Daniel that speaks of the great and awesome God, but leaves off the word mighty. So in effect, the image of the all-powerful, all-dominant God that Jews had in the biblical period is simply contradicted by the facts of the history. So you can't talk about God the same way. So as it were, God's praise fell into disuse. Along came the members of the great assembly. And they said, they restored the words, Hakel, Hagodol, Hagibor, and If you open the Amidah, if you open the Shmon Esrei, the central side standing prayer of rabbinic tradition, it opens by saying, Elohei Abraham, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Ha'el Ha'gadol, Ha'gibor, Ha'nora. That's the original great praise, fully restored. But how can you restore it? It's not credible if they're trampling his people and his home. The answer they gave is, on the contrary, Gvurat Gvurato, the might of God's might, is that he conquers his inclination. He exercises patience toward the wicked. Where is God's might? The answer is when God has self-limited to give humans greater freedom. And this freedom allowed the empire, the first, the Babylonian empire, and later the Roman empire, to invade and to trample and to destroy the Beit HaMikdash, the, the, the temple. So where is God's might? The answer is he conquers his inclination. God's overwhelming urge, the urge that was reflected in biblical times, was that when evil rules, God smashes the empire, smashes the evil empire and insists upon a world of justice. But now we live in a world where God does not stop the Romans does not stop the Babylonians. 
So where is his might? His might is his patience, his self-control. God has released greater freedom in history and in human activity. It will not all be decided by God's intervention and by visible miracles. It will be decided by human behaviors much more. So if, in fact, as what happened in the Roman period, even though the intentions were good to clear the Romans out of the temple, it was a revolt against the world power, very poorly timed, in which the people were in a civil war fighting each other, and so they lost. And so God allowed the freedom of human activity for good and for bad, and allowed the evil ones to win that, put down that rebellion, and exile the Jewish people. So that's where you see God's might, not in smashing evil, but in tolerating it and allowing human freedom and greater responsibility in history on the side of the good people and on the side of the evil people. And the Eluhei how do we understand God's awesomeness? If God stands by and allows the Gentiles and the evil empire to ruin and to destroy and to exile, then where is God's awesomeness? The answer is, frankly, were it not for the awesomeness of the Holy One, blessed be he, how could one people survive among the nations? In a world in which God does not intervene and in which evil seems to be triumphant, so how do we know there is a God altogether? The answer is the miracle of Jewish survival. This is one people among 70 hostile nations surrounded by a world power that was out to crush it. How did it survive? The answer is you see the hidden presence of God, the hidden defense. God, as it were, is the hidden force field that puts a limit. Even though terrible things are done to the Jewish people in their exile, they are not destroyed. That shows behind the scenes the continuing divine presence that sustains us and sustains us in history. So the men of the great assembly restored these words when we pray to God in the Amidah and we speak of the great mighty Muslim God. We understand we're not speaking to the God who at our request is going to smash the evil ones. Our request is going to override the logic of power and split the sea and equalize the weak and the strong, and the weak will come ahead. We're speaking of the God who, out of patience and acceptance of human freedom, will allow the continuing triumph of evil, if that's the way the power force continues, but will sustain the Jewish people to make sure that it lasts through this period. So the Talmud now explains how we can have an opening prayer in rabbinic times, which speaks of the great, mighty, and awesome God. But the great, mighty, and awesome God isn't what she or he used to be, as I said. This is not the God who is all-controlling. This is the God who is a true partner, who allows human freedom, and who urges humans to act responsibly and effectively so that the good will win out and who is not going to step in and override nature to make sure that they win, but rather will continue to sustain them until the conditions change, until they develop their own effective leadership. Now the Talmud, having given this answer, asks a simple question. 
But according to your interpretation, Jeremiah and Daniel left off the word Nora, left off the word Gibor, a heroic, mighty God. But how can they do it? We have a principle. How could they do this in our North's intermodal? We have a principle that whenever you quote the Bible, you should quote it as it is. How dare they leave out God's might or God's awesomeness and change Moses' words? Is this not a flouting of the principle that the Bible is sacred and must be quoted exactly as it speaks? To which Rabbi Elozer answers, because they knew of the Holy One, blessed be he, that he is truthful. Daniel and Jeremiah knew about God, mighty or self-controlled, controlling or allowing greater human autonomy, God above all is truthful. Consequently, they did not speak falsely about him. To speak about God and to talk about God is all-powerful. When in history we see he is not exercising that power, he's allowing humans to exercise their power. When in history he is not protecting his people against disaster or defeat if they don't run the right policies, but he is only sustaining them against destruction. So they knew that God is truthful. So they couldn't bring themselves to lie to God, to have spoken of God as all-powerful and as all-awesome in that moment would be a lie. And the principle which they are telling us is speak truth to power, speak truth to God. You may think it is more pious to speak of God as all-powerful or all-doing all miracles, but in fact, to speak of God, God in the world that we live in is an untruth. It's really a distortion, and far from praising God, it demeans God. Now, again, this may sound like a theoretical question, but I'm making two points here. Number one is that the rabbinic tradition, this is one of its most remarkable contributions and understanding. It carries on the Bible, but it tells us that the portrait of God's absolute control in history and allowing humans very limited participation that the covenant is dominated by God and the Jews sort of basically go along is no longer true to understand God properly in the world we live in is to understand that God has self-limited again just as God self-limits in entering the covenant and says I will not complete the repair of the world unless you do your share just as God says, I will never again bring total punishment upon people. I will respect natural law. So this self-limited God, self-limited again, and said, I'm allowing humans greater responsibility in history. The obvious example I would give is never again in rabbinic times is there revelation from Sinai with thunder and lightning. In rabbinic times, they come to the end of prophecy where God sends a message, thus saith the Lord, you must listen. Now, if you want to know what God wants, God is self-limiting, asking humans to step up, become true partners, and establish what is God asking of us right now. That's what rabbis do. They study the past tradition. They study the past revelations. They study the actual history. And they say, this is what God is asking us to do at this very moment. This is the so-called oral law Torah Shabbat. 
So God has called upon humans to become a much more active partner. There will be no more visible miracles to overturn natural law, but rather, at best, miracles that respect natural law that operate through human activity that are behind the scenes, as the story of Purim, for example, in which, unlike Exodus and Passover, where the Jews were schlepping, but God dragged them out and smashed the Egyptians and had them cross the Red Sea. In Purim, without Mordecai and Esther's initiative, there would have been no salvation for the Jews. And God is not openly intervening, but behind the scenes and enabling this Jewish self-defense and great victory. So we are living in a second stage of the tradition. And this has many implications, how we pray to God, for example. Here again, we are praying not for reversal overcoming of natural law, but for the fulfillment of God's hope and wishes and goodness through natural law. We are to pray not for we have done something rash and foolish, but God shall override the forces of the empire and of the evil and win for us. We have to pray that we are responsible and act carefully and responsibly. So I will only add one more comment to this, which is that I'm just finishing a book on the Jewish tradition, which I argue that this remarkable transformation, self-reduction, it's called simsum in Kabbalistic language. God self-limits to make room for the world in the first round. God self-limits again to invite human partner to become more responsible, more active in establishing what God wants in the second phase. I'm arguing that we're living through a third phase. And that if we study the facts around us, we will see. The obvious example is the Holocaust, but we'll see around us that we live in a world in which God does not manifestly overturn, overturn natural law at all. There are miracles. There are more miracles today, I believe, than ever before. But God operates entirely through human beings and through natural law. So the human being, say a doctor, studies natural law and discovers that chemicals have certain ability to kill cancer, discover that certain waves can be, can be diverted into broadcasting, into long-term, into smartphones. So there are more miracles than ever before, but those miracles operate not by reversing or overcoming natural law, but by using them, by bringing out these powers. And that's the human role. The human partner's role is to study these laws and bring out their capacity to overcome death or to overcome illness or to improve the productivity of the world or the communication of the world. So this fundamental shift, which is captured in our text today, I believe is matched by an even more radical self-hiding, self-limitation of God in which humans take full responsibility for history and for realizing the covenant. The covenant has not changed. It remains the covenant of Tikkun Olam, the Jewish dream of turning this world into a paradise. The difference is that we accept the idea that it will happen not by some messianic, miraculous redeemer, but by our activity, by our joining in, in this partnership, 
and acting fully responsibly on the side of life, on the side of repair, on the side of justice. Uh, that is the implication. And so again, when we speak in our time of the great, mighty, and awesome God, we are speaking not only of the God who is saving the Jewish people, but we're speaking to ourselves as the people without an IDF, without self-defense, without an active Jewish lobby in America to protect and affirm our right to be separate and self-sovereign people, we would be in danger of not going on. This is the transformation that we are living together and for which our text gives us a kind of a role model. Jewish tradition claims that reality is multi-layered and that in fact, not just the visible, touchable, measurable dimension of reality is real, there are hidden dimensions. And by the way, those hidden dimensions, including obviously the divine, which is, a, in other words, in a certain sense, we're saying is that the physical reality we're living in, it's real, it's, it's to be taken seriously. It is the task of humans to repair it, but it, it, it turn it into a paradise. But at the same time, it is floating, as it were, in a sea of divinity. Now, you may say, I don't experience that. The answer Jewish tradition has given is, but we experience as a people. That's what prayers are about. That's what encounter in history is about. We had encounters in history in which we felt the divine presence. That's what a bracha blessing is about. I take a piece of food, but when I say the blessing, I remind myself that it is the fruit of a cosmic process that is supported, that is founded on this hidden God. I don't think God is insisting that you believe in God or that you declare that. Jewish tradition makes it available. It says that this is the blessing, which if you open up, if you drill down deeply, you will find just as if you drill down deeply, you'll discover that emotion, love, which are not measurable, are the most profound and real experiences of life that make life worth living. So if you drill down, you can encounter a presence of the divine, a divine that is sustaining, that is loving according to Jewish tradition, that embraces and affirms our dignity and our value, and that takes the weakest and the most vulnerable and says they are just as precious and to be treated. So that's the task. What I'm saying is therefore, if you answer to me, I don't experience it, then my answer is that doesn't change your ability or your capacity to join in the covenant of the Jewish people, which is to repair the world, which is to upgrade life, which is to bring justice and dignity to every human being. If you will enable yourself or if you will encounter through Jewish religious experiences, the presence of God, you will find an even more powerful sustaining force. You will find what the Jewish people has found that somehow when it appeared totally lost and nothing could save it, nothing could protect it, somehow it managed to sustain itself with this hidden force behind it. And this has given the Jews the strength to persist through terrible catastrophe, through long periods of history where it appeared despair and hopelessness was the only answer. This is not a condition of being a committed Jew or a part of the covenant. 
but if you allow yourself, you may find that it is a source of great sustenance and of hope. And it has been for the Jewish people or good parts of it for centuries and millennia. During the long period of exile, the truth is that rabbinic tradition, which came by saying that God has called on humans to take more responsibility, it became passive. It said, there's no hope, we're not going to be able to go back to Israel. God will send a Messiah, a miraculous heavenly redeemer to bring us back. And the truth is that Zionism was originally opposed by the majority of the rabbis. Most of the initial Zionists, of course, there were a handful, that's 5% of the Jewish people, was secularists who were breaking with tradition because they were saying, we have to take power, we have to take responsibility. We have to take on the task of restoring the Jewish people and seeing what was coming in Europe, seeing the anti-Semitism even in modernity, seeing the long-term risk that Jews could not protect themselves. The early Zionists said the only answer is to go back to build their own country where Jews will have self-control and self-government and can defend themselves and can build the whole society. Of course, at the time, it appeared very far-fetched. The vast majority of Jews went to America, went, if they moved from Eastern Europe, went to Argentina, they went to where they thought would be safe places. Did not understand the amazing and what turned out miraculous. But when you speak of divine redemption, what I'm saying is that is the divine redemption. God is saying, I operate through agents. I operate through natural law. Israel's Air Force does not successfully bomb because God directs the missiles in a, in a new direction. It, it develops the technology. It trains this, the pilots. It does these amazing things, trying to be precise and prevent or minimize side collateral damage and civilian death. That's how you exercise power and you take responsibility. And that is the, that, so that's a divine redemption. I say it, it's, it's, it's quite tragic. In many ways, the Haredi version of orthodoxy has won out even with people who are not observant or personally orthodox. Sort of, you know, the divine redemption is that messianic redeemer. So where is it? It's not going to come. If I can quote Elie Wiesel here, he has a great passage in the gates of the forest in which the survivor speaks with the Rebbe. And he says to him, the Rebbe says, you know, the Messiah has to come. He said, Messiah would come now. It's too late. If there was ever a time when a miracle redeemer could have come and saved this it was during the show of it didn't come then. It's too late now. I wouldn't accept such a redeemer who, who had failed to come when it was most desperately needed. But, says Ellie, Messiah can't come anymore, but we can bring it. We have the capacity to build the world, to so strengthen the Jewish people, to so strengthen, and not just Jewish people. I want to point out to you that since the Shoah, women's liberation, African American liberation, gay liberation, many other weak or vulnerable populations woke up to the message of the Shoah, that human freedom is available, it's available to evil people, it's available to good people, and good people must take power to make sure that they have full dignity and they're not wiped out. So this is, in fact, what's at stake at this very moment in all our decisions personally, to take responsibility 
So if we take responsibility, then the divine redemption will occur. But it's not going to come because we're hopeless and because we are, you know, we are powerless, but God is going to do the work for us. That's the essence of covenant. The essence of covenant is that you're not alone. You're in a partnership. But it won't be done for you. You have to pay your fair share in the covenant. I think this is the most important Jewish teaching for the world. It's a combination. It's saying there is a God. This God sustains you. This God loves you. This God calls you and directs you. This God judges you and improves you and blesses you to do the right thing. But in the end, you are not infantile. This is not a cargo cult, but rather you have to step up and take responsibility. And if you do, then the promised redemption will come. I mean, I think of it every day. I, I'm living in Jerusalem right now, and I walk the streets of Jerusalem, and I say to myself, here we're saying, come back to Jerusalem. But how do we know God comes back to Jerusalem, not by outside miracles, but by the amazing growth of the popular Jewish population and the day, the day instruction and the development of a light rail and the development of all the unifying cultural and religious activities that make it a feast for the mind and the soul. So that's the divine redemption that is coming and in which we participate. And I think it's part of what I was trying to say. Judaism is a, a maturation process. The covenant is a maturation process. When people were weak and more limited understanding, so yes, God did the heavy lifting, including the visible miracles and the sending of the prophet to give advice. But the covenant is a training educational program. And the rabbis developed the whole idea of learning Torah and of blessing and of prayers so that humans can participate and understand the purpose of life and what they should be doing. So that is the human role to grow up and to take on this responsibility. And that is what I'm saying. I, we're living in a particular generation, which is a kind of a climax because we see climax the Jews take power in a way that they have not for thousands of years. It's a climax in which not just the Jews, all humans, major breakthroughs for life in medicine, in industry, in all these areas of quality of life and of wealth and of improving conditions of life. And frankly, behind it, breakthroughs for equality and dignity and justice. Now, again, these are not one-way streets. And there is populism and there are dictatorships and there are Myanmar coups that reverse democracy and there are abuses such as the Putin system. But it's in our hands and it's the human capacity, which is in many areas is breaking through with higher levels of redemption and of justice. And that is the divine redemption. So we have to understand that we're both praying and making it happen at the same time. What is the religious calling? The religious calling, I believe, the overriding religious calling is to create a world full of life that sustains life at its highest dignity. And this is the messianic vision that we're going to take the earth with its many flaws and we're going to overcome all the enemies of life. Poverty is an enemy of life. It's not just that it's poor. It means less choice. It means you can't get educated. It means that you are, don't have the kind of shelter. 
means you're more vulnerable to COVID-19 pandemics. So what the, what the prophets say is the human calling is to overcome all the enemies of life. Now, the truth is this calling we learn from rabbinic texts, this calling we learn from Jewish tradition, and Jewish tradition has been an amazing teacher and role model for the whole world, not just through Judaism to Christianity, into Islam, into modern culture, secular culture, this vision of world repair has been taught. That having been said, in my judgment, God's, who are God's um, commandos, special operation forces, the ones who are leading the charge toward greater life? The answer is medicine, doctors, who have developed amazing cures in so many areas and are working on more, or would develop a vaccine that could stop the pandemic. The shock troops are the people in law who are working for justice and equality and freedom and dignity and so on. So would it be more valuable to study science texts than rabbinic texts? My answer is, this is the mistake of the Haredi position. If you say you and should full-time, everybody should study Torah texts, it's a mistake. And had everybody done so, we would have had much less cures, much less improvement in living conditions, much less improvement in public health, much less improvement in overcoming poverty. So it is a mitzvah. Now you choose your mitzvah, meaning even if everybody chooses science, there'd be a mistake there too, because you need study of texts that inspire to what purpose do we use science? To what purpose do we apply medicine? So you need this balance. But yes, X percentage, and I would say much less than the Haredi version, should be studying the texts that inspire, that set the standard, that give us a vision of world repair. But the majority, yes, the majority should be studying science, medicine, or for that matter, industry. How do you increase productivity? Because I say again, productivity is not just a quantitative. Once you create and you raise standards of living, and you make better food available and better shelter available and more cultural expression possible, you have raised the standard of living, you've improved the quality of life. So that's on the frontier of religious activity, in my mind, just as much, if not more so, than rabbinic texts. So that's the balance I'm calling for. And I think Jewish religion has to make that balance and show a role model. On the one hand, it teaches that a whole society should devote itself that a society can create a society of greater justice, and not just for Jews, for minorities, for other participants in life. And at the same time, there can be a devotion or a stream or a percentage that devotes themselves to the ideology, to the meaning, to the higher calling. It's the balance of the two that makes it possible. I'd add one last comment too, the extent to which modernity achieved great breakthroughs. But then because God is hidden, and because God is not so controlling, many people became convinced there is no God, and therefore they are the masters. So one of the important Jewish teachings about idolatry. Idolatry is to take a human activity, or a human value, or a human institution, or a human person, and say they're absolute. We are the masters of the universe. We are the gods. And you know what happens then? So the productivity and the industry 
turns into all-out pollution, into abuse of the environment, into species destruction. And I would argue that is in itself a perfect example of why covenant is so crucial. This healthy relationship of partnership between humans and the divine. We don't own the earth. The earth is the Lord's, but we appreciate its sacredness and the responsibility we have to improve it and perfect it and to make this earth into a paradise of sustained life. That's the balance wheel. And I would argue that, and I'm not saying all the atheists are to blame here, but to the extent that humans lost the sense of divine and there's something beyond human is the extent to which we have seen a real decay in human responsibility. And this really environmental climate destruction threatening where we live in. And yes, so part of the re-challenge now is not just to go all out to improve the climate and the environment, but to regrasp again the Jewish teaching of limits, that the earth is precious, but it's not to be made absolute in human terms. That it's the combination of the infinite God and the cosmos, which we can admire and appreciate and savor and improve. But it's also our own limitations as we do this. A combination of taking on full responsibility while knowing your limitations, that's what defines a moral and a constructive behavior pattern for human beings. And I think it's one of the teachings that Judaism can continue to share and teach with the world. This episode of Tashma was produced by Jeremy Tabak and edited by Evan Feist. I'm your host, Rabbi Avi Killip. It has been a pleasure to learn with you.